0: I'm so grateful that you are here today. I want to just say again, if you're a guest this morning, we're grateful for your presence today. I want to also thank Kevin. Always love when Kevin leads our thoughts around uh, communion and Lord's supper, and and just the way he shares his heart. Uh, and I want to I want to mention a word of thanks to the to those men and young men that went uh, out to Whetstone at the end of the summer. As was mentioned, that video. Whetstone put together for us, I think with Robin Yeldell and, and them work together to do that and um, and th- it kind of represents all the last years that we've been going out to Whetstone Boys Ranch. Whetstone, if you're not familiar, is one of our mission partners uh, in Missouri and they work with uh, at-risk boys in a variety of ways to encourage them and help them uh, find a path for their future and, uh, and so we go out every end of every summer and take a trip out there to support and encourage them and so I think the plan is for us to show the last part of that video uh, after church today as, as we're leaving and di- being dismissed, so be aware of that and looking for that. So today we are in week seven of a series <clears throat> that we're calling Becoming Church. I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter eight. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there should be there one in the, in the pew in front of you and encourage you to find that as we'll be reading together uh, from a couple of places in, in 1 Corinthians this morning. Uh, in this series, we are, we're thinking about what it means to become the church that God imagines for us to be. Uh, that, that title of that series assumes, right, that we have not arrived. We have not completed our journey and our task as Christians. And, and, and so we know that there's things we can get better at as a church, as a body of Christ, as individuals. We can improve, we can grow. And so to do that and to think about that, what does it mean to become the church that God imagines? We're, we're using the book of 1 Corinthians uh, that was written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth. And uh, there's obviously two of these letters, First and 2 Corinthians. And these these, com- these letters really represent a conversation that was going on between Paul and this church. And as I've said in previous weeks, this church, man, they have so many Issue, so many challenges and problems that uh, you would think that one might look at this, these letters and go, you know, maybe, maybe Corinth isn't the best church to model our church after. But I, I've suggested and I believe that, that maybe that's the reason we need to look at them. Because as Kevin referenced, we're all imperfect people and we know that there is no perfect church because they're all made up of imperfect people and therefore we have to, to hope and work and pray Along with the Spirit's work in, in us, uh, there, there are steps we can take to become the people that God imagines for us to be. So today is in chapter 8. We're picking up now. We're about the at half, the halfway point through this letter and this conversation that Paul is having with this church today in chapter 8. And as we read, uh, one thing I want you to notice in chapter 8 are that, that there are going to be some quotation marks uh, and that's because in this part of the letter, Paul is responding to some specific questions that they have asked him to address that are going on in their church. You may remember last week when we were in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Chapter 7 begins with this phrase, now for the matters that you wrote about. And then Paul begins to explain his thoughts about some questions that they have in chapter 7. And so chapter 8 now is the same thing is happening. happening. Uh, he's still writing them, uh, talking to them about the, the matters that they wrote him about and still addressing those questions that they've had. But in chapter 8, the topic changes from chapter 7. And so where you're going to see, quote, when you see those quotation marks, Paul is is responding to them using their own words, right? There's something that they've written in their letter to him, and there's some language that they use, and he uses those same exact words in his description and explanation about what he wants them to do. And so he goes uh, on with this topic that we're going to look at this morning in chapters 8, 9, and 10. So today we are going to cover all three chapters. It's going to be quite a sermon, uh, so just s- settle in. We may be here a while. No, I'm kidding. Uh, so, but I, I don't I've never attempted to try to talk about three chapters in one sermon it might be a mistake but I want you to, what I really want to do is kind of put back on you the responsibility of reading all three of these chapters if you did not get a chance to do that prior to this moment because really they represent one conversation and so I think I think it's important that they all kind of be taught together but I will not be able to say everything that there is to say about all three chapters so that being said let's let's begin. Uh, In chapter 8, verse 1, Paul says, Now about food sacrificed to idols, we know that we all possess knowledge. There's that first set of quotation marks. But knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. But whoever loves God is known by God. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, or as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came, and through whom we live. But not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god, lowercase g, god. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat and no better if we do. Be careful, however, that, you, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if, I, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause them to fall. So the title of today's sermon is People Over Preferences, People Over Preferences. And I want to talk about the people part of that phrase but in a minute, but I want to talk about preferences first. I have a lot of preferences. Some of them I have shared and I'm going to repeat this morning to you and, some, and so you'll know. Uh, just a few, though, in my, in my own life, and I want you to think about the preferences that you have in your life. I, I prefer washing dishes at the kitchen sink to any other house chore that I could have to do. I prefer mountains over beach every day of the week. I prefer the Cowboys to anyone else in the NFC East. Last week, I just happened to be flipping channels and stopped on the New England Patriots and Washington Redskins game. And Olivia was in the living room, and she was, watch, she was watching it with me, and she said, Dad, who are we cheering for, the New England or the Washington? And I said, I said, well, we usually don't cheer for the Patriots, but in this case, we are because we don't want the Redskins to ever win, right? So I prefer for everybody, you know, for everybody else in the NFC East to lose. I prefer jelly on my toast instead of honey, and if you're going to put it on the toast, please spread it all the way to the edges so that I have a bite of jelly with every bite. I prefer, as has been well documented, and many of you have already heard me say, mustard over mayonnaise. I prefer daylight savings time over standard time. I prefer spring and fall temperatures to summer and deep winter temperatures. So these are just a few of my preferences. I have a lot. We could be here a while. And you have a lot of preferences, too. And the people that were a part of this church in Corinth had preferences, too. And the question that they ask Paul is about food that's been sacrificed to idols. Now, in our day, food, eating food that has been sacrificed to idols isn't even a thing for you. So there's, there's some some culture kind of gap here that we have to attempt to kind of bridge in order to understand what in the world is going on, first of all, in Corinth, and how does it apply to our own lives. The culture in Corinth was saturated in idol worship and temples that had been built and constructed to those little lowercase g gods, those idols. And those idols represented all the gods that people worshipped and had worshipped before they became a Christian. And that's important to remember that this is not a, a culture where Christianity was introduced and then the culture grew from that introduction. This is a culture where idols and gods of all kinds are, are a part of, deeply a part of the culture that the church in Corinth is living in, and then they become Christian. And so they are wrestling with, right, it's a significant part of their culture. And, and they're wrestling with, what, what do I make of all this? And so the position that those are, that are writing to Paul have is that they want Paul to know that they have the knowledge. That's where the quotation marks you know, that he uses. They, we don't get to see what they wrote to him, but it's helpful in this case to know when he uses those quotation marks that he's referencing maybe something that they said to him. And so their position is that all have knowledge and that idols are not God's everybody knows this they say and so Paul responds essentially by saying no everybody doesn't know this everybody that's a Christian doesn't have that knowledge they're still all on a journey that's different than your journey most people think that this is not the entire church in Corinth that's asking these very specific questions but a a group of people within the church that want to know if their behavior is okay And so he's saying not everybody that is a part of the church has the knowledge that some of you have. There are people that are at different points in their spiritual journey. And they don't have the knowledge that you, whoever the writer of this question is, has. This is their, I I think it's really their way of trying to kind of defend the knowledge that they have. The place that they have arrived at in their relationship with the Lord. So this group doesn't see the problem with eating meat that has been sacrificed to idols. So Paul is addressing that specific thing. In the, in the Corinthian culture, again, everybody knew that there had been temples, there were temples in their city that had been constructed to various gods, and they knew about the ritual practices that went on in those temples, and that people who went to those temples, when they would go, they would, they would participate in those rituals, and one of those rituals included sacrificing to these gods. Now, this is a picture, I want to show you a picture of a temple, the ruins of a temple, a sclepion, I think is how you pronounce it. I'm not actually sure how you pronounce it, but this this is a place that you could go visit in what is what it what was ancient Corinth. And there there are several temples in Corinth, and they had they had dining rooms in these temples. Uh and, and in these dining rooms, uh on many a different occasions, feasts would be held. Uh, celebrations would be held, even including things like people's birthdays would be celebrated in places like this. And I want you to think about, I think this was really, this changed the way that I read these chapters uh, when I understood that in many cases, what would would take place in these temples in that day was much like what we would understand to be a restaurant in ancient times. So I don't know what you think of when you think of uh, a sacrifice to an idol, but there would, these, there would be places within these temples where people would eat, they would gather, and, they would, and eating meat would be a part of that process. And obviously in this church there are Jews and there are Greeks, and Jews have all kinds of rules and rituals and restrictions about what they can and can't eat. And so it may not have actually been you know, an altar and putting an animal on top and sacrificing that animal and burning it and you know, having some sort of sacrifice that goes to these temple idols and these temple gods. It may have been something more just like a meal. But there are archaeologists that have actually found evidence of a dining room in, the, in these ruins uh, that has something like couches along the four walls and a table in the center. So imagine, just for, with me for a minute, that this is a part of your culture. right? And now Jesus has been introduced into this culture. And pe- people start talking about Jesus and the following him and Inviting you to kind of come and see what that's about, and people are now trying to figure out w- what is what is this part of my life that's been so it's been so deeply ingrained in who I am? How does it now align with what I'm learning about Jesus? And and then how does that Im- you know what how does that play out within the larger church? Now the church is growing, and people are uh, other people are coming. You now how do how do we make sense of all of these things? They're trying to figure out what to do with the parts of their lives. That were deeply influenced by their culture now that they're Christians? What do we do with the knowledge that these things are not as big of a deal to us, but that they might bother other people? What do we do with our preferences? And Paul takes their questions and he uses the topic of food being sacrificed to idols. I think really to, to talk about relationships, I think the thing he's talking about in chapters 8, 9, and 10 is relationships within the church, to talk about people. And I think if you could summarize his point in a phrase, I think it would be people over preferences. When it comes to the church, people over preferences. When it comes to the body of Christ, people over preferences. When it comes to the way that I behave in society and you behave in our city, in our in our world, as a follower of Jesus, we always think about people over our preferences. When it comes to the way we live out our lives of faith, it's always people over preferences. People always matter more than our preferences. Now, in our time, again, the issue of eating food that's been sacrificed to idols, that's not a thing for us. But we have our own things, right? Our own preferences. And they're not likely as, as silly as the preferences that I shared a few minutes ago. But they are preferences, preferences that we have about matters of faith, preferences that we have about things in our culture, preferences that we have about things in our society. Maybe it's it's something in worship. that When we gather, you have particular preferences about the way we do things or the way we don't do things. Or when we do that, that really annoys me or bothers me. I don't like this thing we do or that song that we sing. We maybe read and interpret scripture in different ways. What do I do with all of those preferences? Or maybe something in society with political opinions or social challenges. What do I do with those opinions? What do I do with those preferences? Maybe it's personal. You have a personal belief about something, a, or you spend money in a certain way, or you do certain things in your free time. And regardless of what your preferences are, as a Christian, Paul's saying when your preferences collide with a person, if we choose the preference over the person, then we have missed the point. The Corinthians, when they are writing this letter to Paul, they say, we have knowledge, and our knowledge gives us freedom, and it gives us rights to be able to do these things, do really whatever we want to do, right? Because there's freedom in Christ. Like them, all the beliefs we have, you have the beliefs you have because you have some measure of knowledge about that topic, that thing, that issue, that person, that situation. And you've come to a conclusion about that thing based on some knowledge that you have. You've Heard me say before that a mentor of mine years ago, something a mentor of mine years ago said was that none of us have the opinions that we have because we think they're the wrong opinions, right? We're all right about all of our opinions, and if at some point I learn that I'm wrong about one of my opinions, I'll change my mind and I'll be right again. Like like that's the reason you have your preferences and your beliefs and your opinions, because you think they're right, and that's okay. Okay. That's okay to hold on to those things. Paul doesn't say that. He says that when those things collide with a person, that people always matter more. That knowledge is good and knowledge should be pursued. And you shouldn't use something like this as, well, it doesn't really matter. I mean, whatever, you know, like we can just do whatever. No, he's not saying that. He's saying knowledge is good and should be pursued. It's okay for us to have things that we prefer in church, in our families, in our personal lives, in the world that we want to see come to reality. But the value of love of neighbor, of love of brother and sister is greater than the value of knowledge. A Christian's life should be expressed with love. So if I believe something but my expression of that belief negatively impacts another person, then I have to check my motivations and maybe even change my actions. Love is what builds the church up, and the church community is of primary importance for Paul. Paul is not interested in seeing the body of Christ today or in that time destroyed because of personal preferences. And this is really what all of chapter 9 is about. We're not going to read it in its entirety. We're going to read a part of it. But Paul says that even though he has the right to do whatever he wants as an apostle, he says, I'm still under the gospel of Jesus Christ. So use whatever freedom you have wisely. But listen to what he says in chapter 9. He says, though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. Next slide. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law. Though I am not free from God's law, but I am under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak I became weak, to win the weak. I became all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. I do this for the sake of the gospel that I might share in its blessings. Paul uses his own life as an example of how to take his own advice. He says, I will lay down my life for the sake of others. In this case, if I never eat meat again because it's what my brother or sister needs to happen, I will never eat meat again. And he says this because he cannot imagine a group of Christians doing anything that would allow anything, especially their preferences, that would allow them from keeping them from their primary goal of living out the gospel of Jesus Christ in their city. This is to be their life's focus, their life's aim. And he continues this same idea in chapter 10 when he says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews or Greeks or the church of God, even as I tried to please everyone in every way. For I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many. His desires are for the body, for the people, the individuals that make up the whole. Even if that means he has to lay down his own preferences, his own personal preferences, he will do it for you or for me. Sometimes in church, what we do is that we take what we believe and what is dear to us and we make a rule about it. Every church does this, individuals do this, and they've been doing it for a long, long time. Right, we have practices here, just our particular body. We have practices that we engage in every single week when we gather that are traditional. There are tradition, which is fine, which is great. Tradition is not a bad word. Somewhere along the way, I think tradition kind of got a bad rap, and I don't think tradition is a bad thing. But tradition is not what's central to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I think that Paul is asking this question: Is the gospel greater for us than our own personal preferences? If your personal desire gets placed above your brother or sister in Christ, then it's always wrong. Then this message is not just something he talks about with this church in Corinth. This message is consistent with his interactions with other churches. In his letter to the Philippians, he writes these words. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, right? Which is really two ways of saying the same thing. Rather, in humility, value others, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of other people. I can't help but wonder, isn't this a message that we need to hear? Isn't this a message that our world needs to hear? In a world where more people do things out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, The church has an opportunity to model for the world what it looks like when a group of people choose because of their belief that there is one Lord and one God. They choose to value people, other people above themselves, and to look not only to their own interests but also to the interests of other people. And for us, as we continue to become the church that Christ imagined, one important part of our identity, maybe the most important part of our identity is that our? we can say, man, people matter more than preferences. I would love for a guest that comes into our family and gets to know us to take away that lesson and go, I don't know, you know, everybody there, but, man, everybody I seem to run into, they, they just seem to care about the other person more than they care about themselves. They care about the other person more than they care about their own preferences and getting their own way. And this takes on a lot of different looks. It certainly can play out in church. Right? Sometimes, though your, your, your preferences are your comfort, I prefer to be comfortable. So because you pursue people over preferences, what it would mean is that you would step out of your comfort zone. That, that might mean getting to know someone that you sit in this room with that you have not taken the opportunity to meet. It might mean that you choose to serve somewhere that you've never served. It might mean that you are willing to rethink some long-held position that you've had. People mattering more than preferences will impact how we think about what it means to be a member of the body of Christ. It also has an impact in how we think about worship, which we'll go into greater detail next week and the week after that in chapters 11 and 12. But I'll just say quickly here that, that one of the, you know, some of the ways that it might play out is that it, we won't always sing the song that you want to sing or the way you want to sing it or how you like it to be sung. But the good news is if you come back next week, we might. Right? But more importantly than that, we may be singing that day for a different sister or brother that Christ also died for than you. So we lay down our preferences for the other people in the body. This sermon may not specifically speak to you, but it might not be your sermon to hear. So you endure it because there might be another one down the road that is the one you need to hear. Right There, there are a lot of ways that it plays out in, within the body in, in worship and in what we think about worship. It might also involve the way you live your personal life. I don't, I'm hesitant to say this because I don't want you to to, to take, this is not my point, the point of the sermon, I'm not preaching this sermon to make a point about alcohol, but this has been certainly a, a text that lots of people have used to make sense of a conversation. Like in our culture, I think it might be the most relevant topic, honestly, with food sacrifice, with idols. If, if there's someone in this body who's determined that it's okay for them to drink a glass of wine, but there is a brother or sister that is a part of this family that, and, that causes us to stumble, then you would lay down that preference because you care more about the brother or sister than you care about yourself right? There are a million ways that it plays out, plays out personally, how we spend our time, how we spend our money. The gospel isn't about whether you do those things never necessarily. The gospel is about how you do those things, right? With your family, it, people over preferences. Man, this is so important in our families. People matter more than me getting my way or me making my point or me winning an argument. In your marriage, this is a massive principle. The person matters more than your preference. With your relationships, that one, you know, that you need to mend, but that you've resisted mending because of your preferences. Yeah, that's the one that I'm talking about this morning. That person matters more than your preferences do. This doesn't mean, church, that there are not norms and expectations. I think quite the opposite, actually. I think Paul is trying to set some new norms. And what he's saying is the norm is that people matter. So if your brother or sister is going to be caused a problem and you have the the opportunity to do something about that, it is your obligation to do it. That's the new norm in the body of Christ. It means that grace can be extended. It means that we don't always get our way. And it will feel countercultural because it is. This is not the way the world functions. We look out for ourselves and our own interests, and we mostly care about what we need to do. And the body of Christ stands sort of in the gap, I believe, between culture and God's kingdom. We stand as the church here in this place, inviting the world to see a different way to live. It will feel countercultural. But when people see it, what what I believe will happen is that they'll look at the church functioning as the church was imagined and intended to function. And they'll say, it looks countercultural, but it must be exactly what happens with kingdom people. And if this is going to happen, the truth is we cannot do it on our own. We need God's help. We cannot survive in this, this journey on our own. But our hope and our prayer and our aim is to live into, right, these words that Paul concludes that I've just read a minute ago at the end of chapter 10, whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we do it all for God's glory, which means it's not for our glory. We do not cause anyone to stumble because we care about our brother or sister, even as I try to please everyone in every way, for I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many. If, we're gonna ha- if this is going to happen, we will need God's help. Living our lives for God's glory, seeking the good of many. And so because we will need God's help, I want to speak a blessing over us as we conclude this morning. From Numbers chapter 6, may the Lord bless you and keep you. And may the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Let's pray. Father, this morning we thank you for reminding us that people matter. And forgive us when when we forget that, when when we prioritize our own preferences and desires and objectives and goals over the people who we are a part of this body with. And God, I pray this morning that you will stir within us an awareness that this will not just be a message that's good in theory, but that you'll stir within us some specific things. And I don't know what they're going to be for each individual person that make up this church family, but I pray that you will stir within us some specific ways that we have prioritized our preferences as a part of this church over the people that are in the, we're in this body with. And that we will be compelled by the power of your Spirit to do something to act, and to act on that. It will move us to action. And I don't know what that's going to be necessarily. It might be an act of forgiveness, of hospitality. It might be a, a relationship that needs to be mended. It may be a word of encouragement that needs to be offered. It may be the stepping outside of a comfort zone to engage someone that we don't know well or that we've never taken the opportunity to get to know. It may be that we complain less or that we show more grace. I'm grateful that that culture already exists in many ways within this church family. And we pray together as a church that you will create it in increasing measure. That there will be a a continued spirit here of, of collaboration and partnership, a desire among one another to continue to build each other up. I'm thankful for the ways that this church seeks to build each other up. And I pray you'll continue to move us to action in the ways that we can continue to become the church that you imagined for us to be. We love you, Father, and we're thankful for Christ, our one Lord, and for you, our one God. And we pray in Jesus' name. And the church said, Amen.